welcome to episode number 38 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. My name is Chris, and joining me is Shane, and we are two amateur astronomers uh, that enjoy looking up at the stars and uh, doing as much astronomy as possible, Shane, but I know that your week ended up being uh, a fair bit busier uh, with work, and uh, I'm not, not sure if you were able to really get out and do much uh, looking up this week. Not really. Just uh, the only looking I did was in the backyard with my two eyeballs. No, <laughs> no optical enhancing at all, unfortunately. Oh, that, that's too bad. Yeah, I, um, I did receive a, a mount that I haven't told you about. Though. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, well, that's exciting. This will be well, the mount. This will be the mount uh, updates then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you uh, you have a big update there as well. Yeah. So um, what did you get? Well. I've always had my eye on, I think it's called a, like a duo T mount or a sky T mount. Okay. I've heard of these. They, they, you can mount like a, uh, a telescope, like a, ref, like a little refractor on one side and then like a bigger telescope on the other side, I think, or something like that. Yeah. So, um, when Canada telescopes used to exist, they had, I think theirs was called the duo T and now like at APM and some of the other, uh, European uh, vendors you can get it's exactly like it's the same mount um, yeah. but I think it's called the sky T and it's made by Skywatcher. okay and yeah, yeah you're think... right oh go ahead no no I was just gonna say is this the one that has like a dovetail uh, on one side where the, the telescope would mount in like a shoe and then the other side it's like at 90 degrees to that is that what it's like or yeah yeah okay yeah it's different that way I'm gonna be googling um, this right now so yeah so so what intrigued me about this mount is that it has a pretty good capacity to handle like a large refractor. And um, the secondary telescope mounting is nice. It's not something that I need to have on a mount. Uh, but the other thing that intrigued me were the, or is the uh, slow motion controls. So a lot of the mounts that you, like Chris and I use is uh, manual mounts, uh, although that's about to change for Chris. <laughs> um, so in order for us to track anything in the sky, we have to nudge our telescope along to, to, to follow the movement. Um, slow motion controls can make that a lot better, particularly for planets, because you just slowly rotate the alt and as uh, slow motion control knobs and it makes it uh, easier to track, especially using high magnifications. Um, so anyway, this sky T or duo T mount has always intrigued me. But I just never really felt compelled to actually order one. And uh, I felt that the Stellar View M2C mount would probably be better for what I needed anyway. But lo and behold, uh, about a week or so ago, I was on astrobicell.com, which is a website for Canadians to sell and buy used astronomy gear. And a person was selling this mount for like I think it was 175 or 180 dollars shipped. Um, well, that yeah, because I'm I'm actually looking, and uh, it doesn't look too bad even new. Like I think I saw like they're mostly UK prices, uh, 299 pounds, be around you know 400 dollars Canadian or so, which I, but the same price as the amount I just bought. Um, yeah, when I you know when I did the conversion on buying one overseas and getting it shipped. Um, you know, you're probably around $600-ish, maybe even a little bit more with tax. So they not um, sell it in Canada or? No, no. Huh. Wow. Well, that's well, amazing though that you're able to uh, get one. 
Yeah, so this is the mount. Uh, the one that I got, I believe, is the one that Canada Telescopes uh, kind of got made or rebranded. Oh, I see. Okay. I so this, I think that's where this person bought bought it from and then uh, and then sold it. So anyway, um, it came this week. I have it on a tripod, and I think tonight, actually, I should have some time uh, to try it out. Uh, the, the Both axes are very, very smooth. Hmm. Um, the slow motion controls seem very responsive. Like there's no, there's no play or delay in them. Sorry uh, if you hear me laughing. I'm so uh, apparently this has been selling in, I think the UK and some other places for some time. And, uh, I kind of got what the base unit looks like, which you can mount. It looks like sort of one telescope hangs off like the, uh, the, uh, I guess the, uh, Zemeth axis. And then the other one, you just sort of slide on almost like a finder scope. Yeah. Yeah. And there's people out there that have, <laughs> they've turned this into an equatorial mount with uh, setting like with, with uh, go-to systems and wedges <laughs> and they, they figured out ways to mount up to like, it looks like four or five telescopes to it. <laughs> so, sorry. Anyway, like some of these setups are pretty ridiculous, but what a cool mount. That is really, really amazing. Yeah, it's kind of a neat looking thing. Um, and like that one side, you know, for the finder scope, essentially. Mm. Um, our little 60 millimeters would go out, go on that side very well for some wide field views. Yeah, yeah, I'm just looking. Okay, this person has has a pretty big Cassegrain on it. Looks like, looks like it can take some pretty, like I've seen even uh, this person is mounting this is in German, but I can clearly see it's a seven inch F15 uh, Skywatcher Cassegrain. And some people are saying that it works great with uh, a six inch Maxutov on one side and an 80 millimeter refractor on the other. Wow, that's, that's quite the mount. What are you, what are you putting on? Uh, what tripod are you putting on? Um, so I have a Explore Scientific Twilight 2 mount and the tripod that came with it is what I put the Sky T on. Uh, to test. So we'll see. We'll see how it does. The advertised capacity is 15 kilograms. And I, you know, I don't know if that's for the whole mount or both sides. Uh, I need to do a little research on it actually to see, you know, what it's capable of. But, you know, reading online, so my largest telescope is a 120 millimeter uh, Skywatcher ED refractor with a yeah. 900 millimeter focal length. So it's a, it's a long telescope. And people seem to use it or you mount that telescope on this sky T mount without really any problems at all. It's supposed to be rock solid. Yeah. I'm looking here and it looks like I've seen now, like, and I I've looked at this, this mount in the past and probably never really, sorry, I'm just adjusting my microphone. Um, never really looked at it that serious. Like you said, it's not available here in Canada as easily, but looks like a lot of people have mounted, um, eight inch uh, re reflectors to it. Lots of eight inch reflectors. Um, yeah. That's, that's substantial. <laughs> yeah. So like an eight inch reflector is probably running, you know, at least around 20 pounds and uh, has a 1200 millimeter focal length ish, depending on uh, this guy put a 10 inch F4 carbon fiber nude on his. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, that's some pretty significant uh, telescopage on these. Wow. Well, congratulations. That is super exciting. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons why I wanted to bring it up on the podcast is that, 
you know, the, some of the gear or, you know, a lot of the gear in astronomy, uh, like in, uh, with telescopes, eyepieces, all this stuff, it can be pretty expensive. Uh, if you're starting from ground zero and you're looking at some of the premium stuff out there, but you know, if you're patient and you watch some of these used sites, you can really walk away with some outstanding details. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this mount is a great example, but just a couple months ago, I, I was able to purchase those TMB super monocentrics for, you know, 10 cents on the dollar <laughs> almost compared to what they normally retail for. So uh, sometimes you can come across these excellent deals on used gear and, uh, you know, be very happy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, uh, yeah. Looking at more and more photos of this, it is, uh, that is a really, really nice mount. I'm very excited to, uh, to see how, how it works for you. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'll send, uh, I'll tweet out a picture of it for our listeners if you want to check it out. Uh, it'll be at Actual Astronomy on Twitter. And uh, then you'll know what we're talking about. You'll, you'll be able to see it. Yeah. Huh. Well, congratulations. That's awesome. Very exciting. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. So that's kind of the extent of my, <laughs> my astronomy this week. I did buy a book that I mentioned to you, Moon, Moon Mars, and Venus. Uh, uh, Maybe I could talk about that in a little bit, but why don't, why don't we hear about your shipment that you received? Yeah, <laughs> so my uh, Skywatcher AZ GTI, no power yet, has arrived, oh, <laughs> finally. No, the, no power cable? No, no power cable. Apparently, it's, uh, it's still in order. I think you can put batteries in it, um, but I only just unpacked it uh, today. I think it came on Thursday or something, and then like uh, my work and that has... Uh, been busy. I, my class is back up, and I've got some other uh, responsibilities on the go. So, um, just h- hadn't had the opportunity to actually pull it out of the box, uh, and knowing that I didn't have power for it. But um, so this is uh, an Alt as mount, uh, but it does have go-to capability. Although I actually think, and I have to verify this before I play around with it too much. It, it seems to work fine without the power. Um, so that's actually pretty exciting. And the neat thing about this is, um, is that it's Altaz, which you and I both prefer. And the reason I think why we prefer the Altaz is kind of once you get over that initial hump of learning the sky, which, by the way, like I think you and I both think is pretty fun. It's pretty fun to learn the night sky and go through that process. And hopefully people who are out there listening uh, will decide to go through that process uh, as well. Um, and then when you know the sky and you have an Altaz mount, um, you have the telescope on it, you can just point it like you kind of know where things are in the sky, you know where the Andromeda Galaxy is, for example, or the Orion Nebula or the Lagoon or whatever, and you can just say, hey, I want to look at that, and boom, you just point the telescope at it, and you're viewing it in like two seconds flat kind of thing. Is that? I think that's like a fair description of how an Altaz work. It just... Yeah, absolutely. It's the most intuitive mount you can use because it's up, down, left, right. There's an equatorial mount because it, you know, it's angled at uh, the Northern star. If you're in the Northern hemisphere, you know, it's not up, down, left, right. It's, it's very, I can't even put it into words, but you really have to learn how to use that mount. Whereas, you know, my five-year-old nephew could operate my Altaz mount 
uh, within minutes. <laughs> yeah, and I I actually think because I and I see newcomers to astronomy do this, and and there's nothing wrong with with doing this. Or everybody has their own way of learning, but I always feel a little bit bad. We, we and you, I'm sure you've seen this as well. People will show up and they've got a computerized mount because a lot of the time people will will recognize that they don't know the night sky or they think they don't know the night sky. And I think maybe that's one of the barriers that people have to learning astronomy is often they they know enough and they know enough of what they want to look at to actually get started. So uh, I can't remember. I, I think you were helping me with these uh, these folks that brought down like a little Celestron orange tube uh, that had a computerized mount and they, they just wanted to look at like the moon or something and the moon was up. Were you there? Were you the one that was helping me with that? And and then yeah, I think we, so. I think and so. then we couldn't get the uh the location dialed in exactly and so it wouldn't work and they just were like but i just want to look at the moon and i and i can see the moon and i know that's saturn over there and whatever it was there was a couple planets up um and we're like yeah that's kind of why we like these really simple <laughs> mounts because you just point them at the th things that you know and then you know if you want to learn other things okay well you learn that thing and then you can point out that other stuff too it's uh it's just just that simple. So it's really unfortunate when when people do uh, unfortunately go and uh, and get something that's a little bit more elaborate. But this telescope uh, mount uh, is LTS, so you can point it wherever you want. Like I said, it seems like it works. Although I'm trying to be a little bit careful because I don't want, like strip gears or anything like that. But it does seem to work without uh, without the goatee. You kind of have to disengage the clutch, and mm -hmm. then it kind of just works like a regular LTS which I'm super excited about. It, it's like a cube, how big it is. It's maybe like six or seven inches by five or six inches. And, uh, and it's pretty solid, it weighs about a kilogram or just over. And um, I really think Skywatcher, you know, between like that mount that you have and this mount, like they're really doing some great stuff these days. Like um, sort of originally they were called Cinta or had a variety of other names and they're one of the largest mass producers of uh, astronomy equipment. Um, and eventually they bought Celestron, I think some other companies. But, um, you know, the, the more recent stuff really seems to be a pretty big step up. So I was, I was kind of surprised. Um, there wasn't that much plastic. So I thought I was kind of getting something that was going to be like 70% plastic and just kind of aluminum and steel were absolutely necessary. And it was sort of the reverse. It was mostly aluminum and steel and plastic were necessary. So um, that was pretty good. And I didn't even have to read the manual. I was able to set it up in my living room. And I sent you some photos. So you can tweet those out or some of those out okay. as well. Awesome. Yeah, I'll definitely do that. And uh, let's see. So I actually bought the version with an 80 millimeter F5 Acromat, which for those who have been paying close attention, I already own an 80 millimeter F5 Acromat. I bought a, a Mead last year and then I modified it with a two-inch focuser and then had some some pinched optics which Shane has has kindly uh, worked out of it and blackened the lenses and done a few other things. Um, but for only another $30 I was able to to add on this 80 millimeter F5. Um, so I thought I would do that just simply because I really like these 80 millimeter F5s. Now with the Mead, which is the Mead Adventure Scope package, the telescope is the strong point and the mount and the eyepieces and the diagonal, which is a prism diagonal, they're all basically throwaway. 
with the uh, 80 millimeter that comes with the AZ GTI, now you're talking about twice the cost at least for, for the Skywatcher version of this. But um, the mount is the strong point. Like really I bought it for the mount and the telescope is almost free with it. With the Mead package, you pretty much pay for the telescope and you get some stuff that's throwaway. There's almost nothing that's throwaway with the, uh, with the Skywatcher package. Maybe the focuser. I'm not a big fan of the little focusers that come with them. So you really should think about swapping that out. And even the eyepieces were kind of like a step up. I think they're probably good enough to get going. And it came with a 90 degree um, actual mirror star diagonal. So I was kind of nice. pleasant, pleasantly surprised that it didn't come with the crummy uh, prism uh, like the Mead did. Uh, so, you know, the Mead can be bought for around, I think, 100 or so dollars. Um, if you just want the what we call the OTA, which is the optical tube assembly, um, but everything else is kind of throwaway, so you don't really get a full package. Whereas with this, and I really like the little 80 millimeter acromats, I think that that is a really good beginner scope. With this, you get a really good mount, like a really awesome mount, and it's a mount that can grow with you. Like, uh, I think this mount can take up to around 10 pounds or something like that, which will take uh, most pretty good little telescopes um, that people are going to buy that would require a mount. Uh, so you can buy this, comes with a scope, and see if you like astronomy. If you don't, you can always turn around these mounts, sell pretty easily, um, and then uh, you're not out a whole lot of money. And then if you decide you really like it, you can always uh, upgrade uh, to something else. But yeah, the only thing that somebody would need with this would be probably a couple decent eyepieces they used it and liked it you can probably get like a 30 and a 10 millimeter and a and a two barlow um and i honestly think that these little low power 80 millimeters do best when you put that two inch focus around like i did with the mead i think it just turns it into like a whole different beast and i really wish that in this case because unlike with the mead where you're spending like 99 or 125 dollars or whatever it was with the Skywatcher, you've already dropped several hundred. I think it's like around $450 Canadian or whatever. Um, so you've already dropped some significant money. I really wish they would have just added on another $100 and, and you get like a good Skywatcher two-inch focuser with it. I think they kind of missed the boat a little bit with that. Um, and then thrown in like, a, like an inexpensive two-inch diagonal and a couple inexpensive eyepieces. Um, you know, for maybe another couple hundred dollars. Cause then I think they, I think they would sell a lot of those. I think people would buy more of these uh, 80 millimeter F5s and they sell tons of them to people like me that take them and either just use them or people that take them and put the two inch focuser on like, like I did or we did. Um, and they're really nice, but uh, yeah, it's neat to have another 80. So, um, you know, if we get out in some bad weather again, or just to have kicking around, um, different different places right by the door. Uh, it's a little bit easier to uh, to just take that out in marginal conditions. Because um, sometimes we observe on dusty roads. And mm -hmm. one, one night when the comet was up, I knew I was going to be on a road and sometimes cars can come by and, you know, it can be like a lot of dust kicked up or, you know, heaven forbid, but a rock could make its way into, into the optical tube. Um, you know, and, and with one of these, not that worried about it. It happens. It happens. Now I have a backup, right? <laughs> <laughs> There's a thread on cloudy nights in the refractor forum, uh, comparing the optics of the various ST80 models that are out there. Oh, really? 
now that you own two, I think you're obligated to post some observing reports there as well. Yeah, I, you know, I was kind of hoping that, you know, the, the main deficiency I found with the, with the mead is that the tube doesn't appear to be totally round. And okay. I think that's where, you know, I, I got it dialed in as, as best I could. Like, I know when you handed it back to me, you said that the alignment was, was out. And it was, but boy, not, not by a lot. In fact, I think the alignment is out by only enough that relatively experienced people would, would notice it. And with these telescopes using low power anyway. Um, but I think I got it dialed in like a fair bit better. In fact, I think it's probably good enough now considering these aren't telescopes you're really taking much beyond 75 or 80 power, maybe a hundred at most. Um, but I noticed with this one, it's identical. It's got an identical, I'm sure the tube is hundred percent identical to that mead tube. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it, it's, it's pretty much, pretty much the, the same thing, but uh, there is like a really simple way to adjust it. And that's the focuser um, has three screws. You can play with it. The focuser that comes with them is a little bit oddly sized and it's not as robust but when you buy one of these um, larger heavier more expensive two inch focusers um, they're a little bit more substantial so you can actually tweak um, the tube a little bit by kind of backing off all the screws and kind of going one going around the tube and slowly um, tightening them all like in a very slow and methodical way. Like I kind of took like half an hour, 40 minutes and did this one night. And uh, I think I got pretty much got it right on. So I think it'll be fine. Right on. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited. And this will take my various Takahashi's and uh, all those kind of accessories. So I'm pretty, pretty excited about that. And it's a lighter mount than my um, nearly 10 pound Takahashi Altaz, which is, uh, which is kind of getting a bit heavy um, as far as just dragging a mount around. Uh, and I want to do more planetary observing. And this mount from Skywatcher has the uh, tracking capability that I'm looking for. So I've been doing some planetary sketching. Maybe we'll just sort of transition into that. And I sent you a couple sketches. Yeah, yeah. I saw those and they look really good. Very rough. They're field sketches. I was not even using a flashlight to draw them. So, uh, can I tweet these out as well? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Oh, and so I was, I was drawing, uh, not quite in the dark. The moon was up, and um, there was some twilight coming in. But you know, it's difficult enough to draw, not circles, but partial circles in that freehand. Even like sitting in a room when you have the paper on the table and you're you know, got good lighting and everything, but when you're holding, like I'm holding my sketchbook, which isn't, you know, hundred percent supported. And then I'm trying to draw that. Even if you did that in a room that was well lit, that would be enough of a challenge. And then add in the fact that it's, that it's dark and, you know, it's nine degrees and windy and whatever, you know, <laughs> got a bit of a, bit of a challenge there. So, but I think other than that, like, I think they're, they're decent. And uh, I thought about kind of printing them up, but, uh, these aren't really sketches that I'm really doing anything with. I'm not publishing these, or at least at this time, I, I don't really have any intentions. Um, but uh, I did do a couple things. I did take a look at Saturn and Jupiter and had a, had a good view of those one night. In fact, it was on Wednesday after I taught my class. 
um, after I teach them pretty jazzed up for a few hours and it was clear, it was windy, but it was clear. And I was like, well, I'm not going to sleep anyway. So I'm going to observe some planets. So I did that. Um, and that was a lot of fun. My wife came out and uh, shared some views. I was able to run about 150 power. Kind of wish I had like 120 power, but, uh, but I ran 150 power for the most part. And maybe I dropped down to 105 with my seven and, you know, had some pretty decent views, not the best views I've had, but decent views. Uh, and I did a couple sessions on Venus and Mars. I did one with my 60. I can't remember if I sent you those. I think I did send you those from last, I think it was Wednesday morning. So I observed oh, yeah. Yeah. Wednesday morning and Wednesday evening. I did Venus and Mars that morning. That was my first one. And that was with the 60. And then I guess it was late on Friday night, early Saturday morning. I did the, the second set and I used the 100 millimeter. And unfortunately, conditions weren't as good on Saturday morning. And, you know, it's amazing. In better, con you know, the conditions, observing conditions impact what you see way more than the telescope, eh? Oh, absolutely, yep, yep. So with the 60 millimeter on Wednesday morning, I was able to see um, things a little bit better than I could with the 100 millimeter on Saturday morning, I, I felt anyway. Um, but the conditions on Wednesday morning were almost ideal. The conditions on Saturday morning were okay, just okay. So on, um, let's see, on Wednesday morning, I was running 120 power on the uh, on the 60 millimeter, which is pretty high power for a 60, and it was taking it all. It was awesome. And then on um, on Saturday, uh, I couldn't run 150 power on the 100 millimeter, which is usually pretty easy in average to good seeing conditions. And I had to run 105 power, and that even felt like it was maybe pushing it just a little bit. And so on Wednesday morning with the 60, I could pretty easily see the polar cap, no problem at all. Uh, but on Saturday morning, it was elusive at best. In fact, I think if I haven't, hadn't been observing it much yet, I probably wouldn't have been able to discern the, the south polar cap of hmm. Mars. So, Very interesting. And, you know, I don't know if we've ever said it, but the polar caps on Mars are very similar to Earth's uh, north and south pole. Uh, where, you know, ice forms uh, and ice is extremely reflective and you can see that the, the similar features on Mars under good conditions every two years, like uh, when Mars comes closer, like it is this year. Yeah. I think they're what carbon dioxide ice though. That's the difference is that on, on earth they're water ice mostly. And then right. it's carbon dioxide. I think, think that's what it is. I could be wrong. I'm not a chemist. Um, and I got to watch it because I have a chemistry teacher taking my astronomy course. So, so I told to I already check you. I already put the caveat out there. I, 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 I'm okay with that. I think that's, it's all good. I had, I've had a couple of physicists take my course before too. So okay. that's always kind of interesting, but I'm not a physicist and I don't, I don't pretend to, to know, uh, all that kind of stuff. So anyway, I, I had some good sessions. Um, I've been comparing the contrast booster with the Celestron Mars filter and unfiltered views. So I've been going between the three. Of course, I'm not using the, the Mars filter on, uh, on Venus, but I'm using the contrast booster on Venus and unfiltered views. 
the mm, Celestron Mars filter is, it, it cuts a lot of light um, in the small scopes, but it does really boost that contrast um, between like the polar area. Like for example, on Saturday morning, I, I can't say definitively that I saw the polar cap with uh, unfiltered or with the contrast booster, but um, definitely was there with the with the Mars filter, like more than half the time, around half the time. So you can kind of say you saw it. Um, but on better mornings, the contrast booster has been better. And on the best mornings, I actually think that the unfiltered views are better. So um, I think it has something to do with like the fact that the Celestron filter really cuts a lot of light. And the more light that you cut when the atmosphere is, is pretty turbulent on, on Earth, um, you're actually cutting out uh, some of that turbulence. So you're, you're increasing the quality of your view. But if that turbulence isn't there, you're simply just uh, knocking the light back, um, which, uh, which isn't necessarily uh, you know, what you might, might wanna do. So I'm not sure if you've played around with that too much or not, or? Well, I don't, I don't have the Celestron Mars filter. But you have I a pile of other filters. Yeah, you have the contrast booster. You're the one that convinced me to get the contrast booster, which is an excellent filter by Bader. Yeah, and I I noticed especially during uh, our Venus observations earlier in the year that um, you know adding some of those darker colored filters or even the um, oh that dark yellow one like I think that's number twelve or something like that. Okay, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, it was weird. I noticed that same sensation almost like it it steadied the the seeing a little bit yeah um, and i think that that's because it was just blocking light so you don't quite notice the the distortions as much from the atmosphere that, that's yeah. the only explanation i can i can lend so yeah. i have noticed that before but um a question about that celestron mars filter does it differ very much from the red or orange rattan filters like is it oh yeah it is hey yeah, yeah okay. it's it's got a very strange cast to it. In fact, I'm kind of disappointed that I didn't get it before because, like I said, it does work really well when the seeing conditions are are average or less. Like, definitely, that's my filter of choice. The worse the seeing conditions are, and in fact, like Saturday morning, I can't say that I would have done much Mars observing without that filter. It it was wow. there making Mars observations and not because the contrast booster. I think it's it's fairly subtle. Um, at best, it does definitely help with the contrast. Um, yeah, but the better the seeing, the less uh, filtering, uh, I think, is necessary, at least in my experience. And uh, yeah, that Mars filter, it's pretty good. But they say the closest one is is the, I think it's the violet filter, like, um, or sorry, the salmon colored one. What's the one that you bought with the special yeah. adapter? And I always wanted one of those, but. Uh, Magenta. Magenta, it's, uh, that's it. Brandon Optics sells it. I think it's like a number 30 or something like that on the Rattan scale. But you need a special adapter and they have the filters, but they don't have the adapters anymore. I wanted to get one uh, okay, to, okay. to compare, but uh, maybe at some point I can convince you to, uh, to loan that to me. Uh, although I feel like I'm slowly collecting all your astronomy equipment as well now. But <laughs> You know, another filter that has intrigued me, and I don't think it's made anymore, is uh, Teleview had two Mars filters, I think a type A and a type B. Yeah, I've heard about those, yeah. I've, I've never, I, I don't know anyone that's used one, uh, you know, so. I've, I heard that the Celestron Mars filter is very similar to one of them. Hmm. Um, right. 
and and it is good like i'm at first the first night i used it was really good conditions um where it was debatable whether or not the contrast filter was providing a better view or not um but on on the other nights when when the conditions aren't as good it's it's good so one thing i'm doing is i'm actually trying to um this is something i was really looking forward to doing for a long time is uh, comparing Venus and Mars. So done some Venus observing uh, in the past. You and I have talked about that. And there's like a lot of these subtle shadings um, on the, the cloud tops of Venus, which, uh, which have been debated in, uh, you know, in articles and by observers, whether or not people are, are actually seeing these things. You know, to me, it, it seems fairly conclusive. I, I had a night this spring where, I did some drawings. Um, the drawings seemed to uh, depict two vertical lines, which I thought seemed pretty weird. I drew them, that's what I saw. And then um, some weeks, almost two months later, um, an observer was going through his, his photos. I guess he had been busy over in France or whatever. And he had taken a photo within, I think, six or eight hours of when I made my observations. And Lo and behold, that, that you could see these two vertical lines, which had shifted a little bit, um, probably uh, accounting for the time discrepancy. Um, so after that, I, I'm very convinced that uh, it is quite possible to, to see features uh, on Venus. But what I'm doing is I'm kind of trying to compare the subtle uh, Venusian shadings to uh, often what are very subtle Mars or Martian shadings of, of the surface of Mars and the polar caps and, and the clouds that go by and kind of get into some conclusions there. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting comparison. Um, I certainly feel, you know, based on my multiple observations of both planets that I, I, I agree that there's, there is something to see on Venus, but it is very subtle. Uh, but the Martian features, uh, while they're not easy, uh, they are much easier or much more distinguished uh, than what I'm able to see on Venus uh, most of the time. Um, you know, and another thing here, just reading a little bit in this new book that I purchased, this Moon, Mars, and Venus, it talks a little bit about the appearance of Venus through a telescope. Um, I'll send you some images, uh, Chris, okay. of, of, the, uh, of, of what they say is, is possible through a telescope. It really lines up to some of your sketches. But what is of interest to me uh, in these images here, and, and these aren't like photographic images. Uh, these might even be sketches in this book, um, mm. is, is the jaggedness of that Terminator that we've talked about. It's, yeah. it's quite evident here. Uh, and you, you can see it in that image, uh, the sketch that I, that I uh, sent to you that I think you're going to tweet out or, or send out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but uh, sort of to be fair, I got to say that uh, the other morning anyway, I, I think the bright spot on the uh, south polar cusp of, of Venus was easier to see than the polar cap on Mars. Oh, wow. Um, cause it is quite bright. And then it's sort of strange enough, I think it's like the Hellas region or, or something like that on Mars. And I, and, and the cool part is I can go back and forth. They're, they're right there in the sky. Mars is a little bit higher up, but Venus is, is near its greatest, uh, Western mean elongation right now. So it's like at 40 something degrees when I'm observing it. So it's, it's high. Um, and I could actually see there was, um, a large brighter area on, 
uh, Venus as well. And I would say they were fairly comparable as far as difficulty in seeing. Um, the darkest features on Mars are far and away much easier to see. Um, but some of the more subtle features on Mars are about the same difficulty um, as most of the, of the features on, uh, on Venus that, uh, that most people would, uh, you know, would, would say that they're seeing through small telescopes. So. Yeah, very interesting. You know, another thing I would like to try, and again, we I'm not the morning guy, so I, I might be waiting a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but it's observing Venus like right at twilight, just right after sunset, so that the brightness of, of Venus doesn't kind of overwhelm some of those subtle details. Uh, yep. A number of things I've read say that's the best time to observe Venus if you really want to tease out some of that finer detail. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm not going into like deep twilight or anything, but I'm observing within an hour of sunrise these days. So, okay, you know, taking it from, I think the other morning I observed as late as almost 5 a.m. So I think sunrise is just before six or something. So, you know, I'm, I'm within, like it's getting bright. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like it's getting bright. I'm not sketching right up in, until that moment. So, uh, but yeah, yeah, so... All right, we got some interesting stuff coming up this week, though. Yes. In fact, we do a whole podcast next on the Perseid meteor shower, um, you know, which which will take place for some time. I guess might have to shift that the release of of the next podcast. And yeah, yeah. Then we have Venus at greatest Western elongation on Thursday, which I think is the usual drop date. You're the one that that controls the drop dates, so. Uh, it's up, up to your discretion, but, uh, you know, Venus is going to be 46 degrees uh, away from the sun. So um, it's nice and high, nice and high in the morning sky for sure. And then on the 15th, I think that's Saturday, we have a double transit of Jupiter and Venus will just be four degrees south of the moon. And then on the, uh, on the next podcast, we're going to talk about this uh, Perseid meteor shower and the summer triangle. So uh, maybe we should just move along to that unless you have anything else to add. Yeah, that sounds good, Chris. Let's do All that. Right. All right. Well, how can people stay in touch with us? They can find us on Twitter. We are at actual astronomy or email. We are actual astronomy at gmail.com. And well, you you know what? And if you look for us on YouTube, you can now find us there. Oh yeah. You're putting um, our, our shows up on YouTube, but I think you were saying it's going to take you uh, some time to get all the episodes because we have almost 40 episodes now. So. Yeah. So I think we have about 20 of our episodes up on YouTube. Now I just started at episode one and I'm working my way through the list. Yeah. There's really nothing visual to see there. It's just a, another source or, or place to go to listen to the podcast. Yeah. Um, however, if you want to leave some comments or, or, you know, put some feedback into the, uh, into the video comment section, please do. We'll certainly read it and respond. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Shane. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. And thanks everybody for listening.